Hey there, this is Jay from Filmstrip dropping in to let you know you're about to hear a classic episode from our archives. Some of these shows were produced before we called the show Filmstrip Podcast, before we used popcorn ratings, uh, had the standard intro song from Frozen Lake 121, or really even knew what we were doing recording and editing the show. However, there's a lot of fun in them, and we hope you enjoy. Just wanted to let you know in case you noticed the differences. Now, on to the show. Continuous Plays Batman series featuring Jay Newcastle and Anna McCoy. You weigh a little more than 108. Oh, really? Let's go. In these spoiler-filled episodes, we will discuss the plots, dissect the themes, and offer our recommendations for your viewing. Continuous Play and Continuous Play podcasts are not affiliated with any movie, television, book, music, or publishing-related company. All properties are copyright and trademark of their respective owners. Any discussion of the characters, plots, or music from the films is strictly for entertainment purposes only, and no infringement is intended. Welcome into Continuous Play's review of the Batman series. I'm Jay. And I'm Anna. And we're glad you've joined us. And tonight we kick off our six-part series with the 1989 film Batman, starring Jack Nicholson, Michael Keaton, and Kim Basinger. A film that was made for a little over $35 million and in its worldwide run in theaters made $411 million. It's restarted the franchise of Batman and has ultimately led us up to where we are today. And, and before we get into talking about this film, let's talk a little bit about how we kind of arrived at Batman. And I'll, I'll start. I'm a fan of Batman from the Justice League cartoons and his own cartoon growing up and a little bit of the comic books and stuff. But I was a teenager when this film came out. This was a film that really appealed to me when it came out in 1989. Actually, this film is my first experience with Batman. I didn't read the comics. I didn't really know anything about it. I didn't watch the old Adam West stuff. So this is my first introduction to the whole Batman franchise. This movie, and back in 1989, the first time I saw it, was my first impression of the whole Batman franchise. And we should say that that, is, that was a lot of people's introduction to, and it really was a reintroduction. And uh, you mentioned it there, I had only seen the Adam West series as it was on in syndication from time to time. And, I, you know, I found it campy and kind of silly. It was fun, but it wasn't anything I just loved. This, on the other hand, this film was my introduction into Batman as a serious and kind of dark character, and it's when I paid a little more attention to the comic side of it, and I got some of the references. I didn't get all of them. My history of it was I knew of Batman, I knew of his story, I kind of knew who the characters were, and I was really interested in this. I mean, when they started advertising this thing, I thought, really, they're going to do they're going to do Batman, and all I could think of at the time was how are they going to make this cartoon character? Because that's really what he was to that point to me, more than the Adam West show, how do they make this cartoon character come to life? And they handed it to Tim Burton. Tim Burton really lobbied to do this thing, and he did this on the strength of two films. He had done Pee-wee's Big Adventure, um, which was the Pee-wee Herman splash, and then he had done Beetlejuice with Michael Keaton, oddly enough. 
and had made that a success. And Beetlejuice especially was a was an avant-garde kind of dark comedy. I mean, it's a different film. We could do it another day maybe. But Peter Goober and, and John Peters, who we should mention are the team that brought us Caddyshack too, put the money behind this. They got behind Tim Burton and with Sam Hamm and Warren Scar and and some of the the you know the Bob Kane some of the uh the inventors of Batman involved they were able to put together this script and this film in 1989 and also it's worth mentioning you said this is kind of a cartoon Tim Burton used to be an animator it's kind of worth mentioning to that that it's such a logical choice for him to kind of upstart the franchise. Well, let's do a quick plot summary here, though, Anna, because I'm sure we'll, we'll go into detail about this, but just to set it up for, for folks. Okay, Batman, of course, is is the story of the Caped Crusader Batman and his alter ego millionaire playboy Bruce Wayne, who was orphaned by by his parents back when he was just a kid, and his, his real only family is his butler, Alfred. And he kind of, through Gotham, has this this image is a billionaire playboy, and that kind of rings true through all the films, as you can, you will see. And so he winds up creating this character, the Joker, and how he does that is he is at Axis Chemicals trying to thwart a, um, a break-in that Jack Napier was set up to do. Jack Napier falls into the chemical bat. And, oops, here comes the Joker, who's this real diabolical type character. And he's got a... And what's funny is Napier is so serious. And when he becomes a Joker, he's just this goofball. And so the Joker runs through the city, causing havoc, gets upset because Batman's taking a lot of his press. Um, and they both meet this Vicki Vale, who is a photojournalist for the Gotham Globe. And over the course... They duke it out, mano a el mano, as the Joker says. And I know I messed that up. Mano a mano, as the Joker says. And it all comes to a head at the end with the Joker winding up. Um, he's about to be saved from his goons from the building where Batman and Vicky are about to plummet to their death. But Batman uses one of his cool little gadgets. Ties the Joker to a gargoyle. The gargoyle pulls him down so far, and the Joker winds up plummeting to his death. And Batman and Vicky survive, and Gotham is safe. And Gotham has a new hero. And the the movie ends with um, Vicky in the limo with Alfred waiting on Batman to get done and come home. And we've got the bat signal, and everything for the time being is good in Gotham. That was an excellent plot summary. That really does sum it up, and we'll, we'll get into the details as we go through this. This discussion may not be the standard linear scene-by-scene discussion maybe you're used to from us here at Continuous Play. We're going to focus a lot on characters and style and design, but we'll definitely get through the plot. Let's talk first off about Michael Keaton as Batman. Now, most people listening to this are going to know the story, you know, Everybody and their brother lobbied to be Batman. Mel Gibson, Charlie Sheen, can you imagine that? Tom Selleck, Bill Murray, think about that for a minute. Uh, Pierce Brosnan, a lot of people were all considered for Batman. But Tim Burton um, was pressured to cast an action star. But he and John Peters, the producer of, of this film and many others, really thought that Michael Keaton had this kind of edgy, tormented quality. That's the quote about them that they say. And Burton agreed because he had used him in Beetlejuice. You know, they set up Michael Keaton 
who at that time had been in a lot of comedies. He'd done Night Shift and Mr. Mom and stuff like that, was not an, an action star. And i got to tell you, when I was that age and I heard Michael Keaton's going to be Batman, it's exactly how I said it. I was really confused about that. What did you think of him as Batman? Well, I'm like you when I heard it, and I'm thinking, like you said, Night Shift, Mr. Mom, all that mm-hmm. stuff. And I'm like, Michael Keaton, really? That's really going to be Batman? But I honestly think it works. I think you can't have an action star as Batman. Look at Batman Robin. Look at Batman and Robin and look how bad Clooney was. Unlike other DC comic characters like Superman, Bruce Wayne is a character. He's got this tormented soul trying to avenge his parents' death and maybe not avenge it, but come to terms with it. And he's very tormented and he's got an intellectual side, whereas Superman literally is the man of steel and just goes in, saves the day, and he really doesn't need to think about it that much. He doesn't have to be that smart. But Batman really has no superpowers. He just has money and those cool gadgets. And he's more of a thinking man superhero, if you want to call it that. That was always what I took away from Batman as a fan of the cartoons and the comics as a kid. Batman had resources. He didn't have super talent or superpowers. He was athletic, maybe. But he had resources and he had a brain. He was a, a bit of a detective, but he was also a politician. He was a businessman. He was a, a, an engineering genius in some ways, or at least he had people around him that did that. It, he His superpower was he knew how to utilize resources, and he had the resources to do all these these. Uh, fantastic thing. So yeah, we're on the same page there. You know, I think that just makes him a more interesting character, a more relatable character because he is human. I like the Batman character and I think you have to have something, you can't have someone like George Clooney as we saw in Batman and Robin or like, I mean, can you imagine Sylvester Stallone playing Batman? Well, yeah, I mean like Kevin Costner, Mel Gibson, you know, Tom Selleck, those are really the three big ones and I guess Pierce Brosnan because Remington Steel was big at the time. You know, they were trying to put him in everything that was action-oriented at the time. Yeah, I, I think this is one thing. There's got to be a relatability here. And Bruce Wayne has a natural relatability because the only difference between him and any of us is he grew up with advantages that most of us or probably none of us have ever even heard of or would dream of, right? It's it's If you can imagine if Donald Trump grew up to be an action hero, it, it would have been Batman because that's really what Bruce Wayne is in a lot of ways. The first time we're introduced to Batman is right in the opening sequence. We see two criminals rob people in an alleyway, and one of them points a gun at the kid, and the other one going, you shouldn't have pointed the gun at the kid, man. The bat's going to get you. They're talking about this bat that's thrown one of their buddies off of a building, and there's all kinds of you know rumor about him. And one, and one guy's like, yeah, whatever, bat, give me a break. And then sure enough, out of the shadows, who comes down but Michael Keaton in the bat suit? They waste no time putting Batman on the screen. And I want to say that was a bold choice by by Burton. Because a lot of times in these films, we ease into the superhero. Well, he's on screen inside of five minutes. And I was thinking back to the Superman movies. And don't they do the whole Clark Kent thing, like how it comes in the... Yeah, the, the origin story is a lot longer in Superman than it was in Batman. Well, we said this about Ghostbusters, is how you just kind of jump right in. Mm-hmm. and there's not a whole lot of backstory. Burton kind of did the same thing. 
Yeah, he did. And and we, we feel like we're picking up on the middle of something and we're being told a lot by these criminals and their interaction with each other that look the bats got him and all this and what you know, what happens? Batman of course shows up in, in some really slow, bad Buffy the vampire slayer type kung fu, um, beats them both up and who are you? And he's like, I'm Batman. You know, and it's so oh it's so cheesy that line reading, but it's become iconic with this film because it was such an introduction to Batman is is a bad dude, and he is literally shaking the criminals down. While we're on this being cheesy, one of the things about the movie that, like, the action sequences were so cheesy, and I couldn't tell if it was like, it was like Batman would just stand there and just his arms would move, and, and like, they have guns and swords and stuff, and he wouldn't get hurt, and it's it's like, okay, really? You're talking about something that I was I was getting to before we get into to Nicholson and, right. and all that stuff, is the limitations of the Batsuit are legendary from this film. Keaton has talked about it. Burton's talked about it. They've all talked about how the thing weighed a lot. You can tell he can't move at all in that thing. When he turns, his whole torso has to turn. Well, that makes more sense. And, and I've never been able to find a real definitive source. If, if you're listening to this podcast and you know, post it in our forum, send me an email. I want to know how much of the stunt work Keaton did versus a stuntman. Because I happen to feel like they had to put a stuntman in there that could move in something like this maybe more than he can. He's not a big dude. He's not a small dude. He's pretty average size, which makes Bruce Wayne interesting, makes Batman interesting. But you got to be pretty hulky to to move around in that suit you can tell the limitations of his movements in these scenes but it's an effective way of introducing him now on the flip side of that he's not the first build here and this is jack nicholson as the joker all right now nicholson's deal on this is legendary in hollywood okay they paid him eight million bucks up front but he got a cut of you know the gate and all this stuff he ultimately made almost like 50 million dollars off of this movie isn't he one i thought i read online that he is still until maybe 2003 or something this he this is the single highest paid an actor has been for a movie oh yeah i mean it's the kind of deal nobody gets anymore but it was the only way he would do it and and he they were going after all kinds of people robin williams wanted this role badly he really wanted it and they passed him over and i'm going to say right now that was a good thing because it would have not worked with him in it but they were looking at david bowie they were looking at james woods all kinds of people to do this but when they got nicholson on board he said he would do it if he could do it on a short time frame originally he was only going to shoot for three weeks he they wound up getting him for about 100 days ultimately but he he got almost 50 million bucks from this thing it was it was pretty high you can't get that kind of deal today Nicholson as the Joker is an interesting choice, and we can get more into the character here in a minute, but he's a big star at this point, and he's won an Oscar and, and all this stuff, but I want to say, going into this, it had been a while since Jack had done something of real note. I mean, he'd done One Flew Over to the Cuckoo's Nest in 75, The Shining was in 1980, he had been in you know movies like Reds, In Terms of Endearment, he won an Academy Award for that in 1983, Princey's Honor was 1985, But then he had been in some misses. I mean, Witches of Eastwick, I mean, he got a lot of critical acclaim for that, but I don't particularly think that's a great movie, critically acclaimed. But he wasn't doing these kind of movies. I I never took Jack Nicholson as a schlocky, comic bit film kind of actor, you know? So it was odd for him to take on this role at the time. I see Jack Nicholson as very versatile. I always have. He has, and I think he's one of the better things in this movie. Carl Grissom, who... 
played by Jack Pallant. The man, I, he's so, so fun to watch. He's so campy just as an actor, <laughs> but he's fun. He, he makes it work. You know, he, you buy him as a bad, you know, dude. You've got the police commissioner, uh, Gordon, and you've got District Attorney Dent. But he plays an important role in this. Harvey Dent, as a character, we all know Harvey Dent, or Batman fans know Harvey Dent ultimately becomes Two-Face. Harvey Dent is really the introduction to Jack Nicholson in a lot of ways because he's given this speech with the mayor talking about how they're going to get tough on crime and, you know, the same thing every politician says. And Jack Nicholson is sitting in the chair in his slick suit with his, you know, and you learn very quickly he's the number one guy. He's the number one right-hand man to this crime boss. And I want to say the best acting Jack Nicholson does in this film is when he's Jack Napier. I totally bought him hook, line, and sinker as a gangster because Jack Nicholson can play that and he brings that persona to life when he's on the screen. And that, and maybe that goes back to what you said. That is more his persona than the Joker. He's not the campy, cartoony Joker. His persona is more the Jack Napier. Napier is going to raid the plant to get the documents or whatever. Grissom calls this corrupt cop and lets him know, hey, Napier and his guys are going to be there. Go take them down. The corrupt cop uh, we've already been introduced to because a, a character played by Robert Wool named Alex Knox, who's a reporter for the Gotham Globe, who ultimately pals around with Vicki Bell later on, has been interviewing everybody, trying to get somebody to go on record about the Batman. And that, I thought that was a neat scene at, at Wayne Manor when he's there and he can't get anybody to confirm the Batman. And at this point, we've set Batman up as he doesn't have allies in the police force yet. He doesn't have anything going for him. He's as much an outlaw and a vigilante to the cops as all these criminals are. And I thought that was a neat way to, to play Batman and his relationships with everybody in Gotham. But, that, but they also have to have a starting point. I mean, we've already yeah. jumped in to where Batman's there and he's protecting the city and we don't have much of a backstory. I mean, if we jumped in and Batman was already buddy-buddy with the cops and the authorities, we wouldn't have much of a plot. This is true. This is true. We, we've got to set something up, and I, I think you're, you're right. We're also introduced to this party to Vicki Vale. We need to talk about her before we get back to the raid at the, at the plant in a minute. Kim Basinger was big movie star at the time. She was one of Hollywood's leading ladies. Of course, you know, former model. So Vicki Vale, we, she's a photojournalist, and she's world-renowned for her photography on all kinds of different subjects and stuff. But she's in town to because she's, she's intrigued by Alex's Bat stories, and she wants to try to be the first person to photograph Batman. And... They both meet Bruce Wayne at this party, and you've set it up in the plot summary. Your Bruce Wayne is this millionaire, billionaire playboy. I don't know if he's a millionaire at this point. He may be a billionaire. I don't know. But he he, he throws money around like it's nobody's business. I mean, they meet him, and he's talking about how, you know, let's open up six cases of champagne. Like, it's no big deal. You know, like, that's it. go get six more, you know, Cokes out of the fridge, you know, would be our equivalent to that. They've met him, and we've got some interplay between them, and they set up some chemistry for her and Bruce Wayne. They're going to pay that off in a bit. But at this party, Alex is there, and he tips her off to, look, there's something going down. The police commissioner just bailed out of here because he's been tipped off that there's a raid going on, too. Something's going on. Bruce Wayne has to excuse himself, and we go back to the Axis Chemicals plant. Anna, you mentioned briefly when we met Batman that some of the action in this movie is cheesy. 
some of the sets in this movie are equally as cheesy. I've seen better stuff at amusement parks than the way they set this thing up. I was thinking that I actually kind of like the art direction of this okay. movie because it was it was a good happy medium to me. Kind of like it reminded me of a comic book. It was a good jumping off point. It was a good nod to the comic books and I actually thought it fit with the movie. Well, I don't know so much about the art direction. The cinematography in this film is excellent. And we, I rarely point out technical people on, on this, this podcast, but I will at this point. Roger Pratt is the cinematographer of this film. He's, he's done this. He did a couple of the Harry Potter films. He's done some incredible work, and he really knows how to use the camera. I said a minute ago, this feels like an amusement park ride. I think that's what Tim Burton was going for, that this is going to feel like a ride. This movie is going to be a ride in some ways. And Axis Chemicals, I've seen chemical plants, okay? They don't look anything like this, all right? They're very sterile environments, actually. They're kind of boring. I, I don't know. And maybe it's Pee Wee's version of a, of, a, of a chemical plant, but it's not any chemical plant I've ever seen. Well, I kept thinking in that scene, why are they shooting at the chemical things? You know the chemicals are going to come out. You know they're going to spray you in the face, so why are you shooting holes in all the chemical things? Yeah, exactly. The gunplay and the chemical play. We get into this, this fight. Napier and his guys realize that there's nothing there when they get there. The safes have all been robbed, and he says, well, we've been ratted out, boys. Keep an eye out. And then the cops show up. And I want to ask you this, okay? This is the first time watching this that I've ever taken this away from it. But I got a lot of confusion as to what time period this film is in. Because I felt like I'm at one minute I'm watching a film that's set in the late 80s, which is when it was made. Then I'm watching gangsters and cops shoot it out like it's Bonnie and Clyde with props like they were borrowed from Roger Rabbit. I, I didn't know when this movie was. Oh, I picked that up when I was 10 years old, Jay, because I couldn't figure out why his parents were dressed like it was the 1920s. Because if you look at them, I went back and looked, and I'm like, okay, this is obviously takes place in the 80s from the cars and stuff and the technology Bruce has. So why... Why does it look like he was born in the 1920s? He'd be like 60 years old. And I think what we're getting into here is something that we'll see carry over maybe into the next film, too. I think Tim Burton is trying to do a lot of things at once here. We're trying to tell an anti-hero story. We're trying to tell a comic book story. We're trying to make it feel like a circus ride. And we're trying to introduce a little bit of film noir in this. You know, J Jack Nicholson is Jack Napier is a film noir gangster. And so is Carl Grissom. So is Jack Palance in this movie. They're, they are straight up noir kind of guys. Having recently watched Roger Rabbit and reviewed that with you, I'm sitting there going like, did they just drag the wardrobe over from Roger Rabbit? I mean, because we got Tommy guns and these old revolvers. And I'm like, this is 1989. You know, Mel Gibson's got a Beretta 9 now. We, you know, we've got Lethal Weapon. We're, we're in the automatic age why do these guys carry around these arcane weapons and talk in a way that feels like it's from a different era? And, and I know it's just a movie, folks. Okay, I get that. But there's a lot of mixed messages going in here. You picked it up when you were 10, obviously way more perceptive than I did at 13. I didn't have any idea what was going on at the time. I didn't pay attention to it. Now I look at it and I'm, I'm curious about it. And then they get into this shootout in a chemical plant. Now, I know criminals are dumb in some ways. But most of them would realize, especially a chemical plant that's their own front, maybe we shouldn't fire live rounds inside the building. But they are letting them fly like it is red dawn in there. Yeah, the shooting 
the people in there. I'm like, it's just going to fly in your face, people. Are you stupid? And then the time period, the just that's something about this this little nitpicky something that drove me nuts. And I'm going to tell you another thing, too. We already set it up early on. In the opening scene, when they're having that talk after they robbed the family, did you get that Batman had thrown that guy off a building? Yeah. Okay, we've now set up something else here in a superhero film that's a little different, or a comic book superhero film that's a little different. We're going to deal with real death here now, because we've now heard of Batman killing somebody. You've seen him in position to kill two other people, and maybe he didn't do it. And the, he even gave a reason. I want you to tell people about me. So maybe that's why he didn't kill those guys in the opening. Now we're going to see the criminals actually go through and do something. Jack Nicholson wheels around after the raid's been spoiled. Everybody's getting arrested. And he calls out the corrupt cop. And he says, you need to think about the future. And he guns him down in front of the police commissioner. That is dark and film noir and gutsy. And it is an interesting choice for a film that, by its nature, attracts a young audience. But I don't think Burton was trying to attract a young audience, necessarily. I think Tim Burton was being Tim Burton, being the kooky thing that he is. <laughs> that he is. And I mean, I just think that this is what I would... I mean, the guy did Pee-wee's Big Adventure and Beetlejuice for before this, for crying out loud. I mean, yeah. I think this is um, Burton being Burton, and it's he's just a dark person. Well, and and in retrospective, yes, that is I can totally agree with you. I'm talking about at the time though, that's a gutsy move to actually see people getting gunned down and dying in these films. You know, Superman, for all the stuff that happens in in Superman films, there's a lot of action in a couple of those. Nobody dies. But I think that's what they're going for. They wanted this to be darker they wanted this to be more adult or high or like teenage to adult they they weren't going for ghostbusters where a four-year-old can see it i think they were going for something darker and trying to take it up a notch from the comic but that's what i got from the movie batman is a darker in general it's just a dark superhero than spider-man superman whatever you want that's what i think they were going for and i think they succeeded because i don't i don't think batman is meant which we've seen with the adam west stuff and we'll see later with batman forever and batman and robin it is not meant to be this cartoony kind of campy thing he's got too much going on in his psyche for that you make a good point i think there's a difference between comic book and cartoon versus camp Mm -hmm. and, and we're skating lines here, yes, and we're certainly nitpicking this thing to death, but we're right on that line, and we're at a good balance. I think you've hit on their head. They wanted to do something dark, darker with a, with a superhero than had been done in modern iteration, and they've certainly done it here. It mm -hmm. sets up everything great, and you get this great showdown between Keaton and Nicholson, who, who really do have some good scenes together. Where the, you know, Even before they're in their full persona, they're so good together on the screen. Nicholson, you know, and he get in a fight, he, he tries to shoot Batman, Batman deflects the bullet, and I, I never got if, like, something sprayed on him or the bullet ricocheted and hit him, it really doesn't matter, but it cuts his face up, he starts to fall, Batman tries to save him, he can't, and he drops him in a vat of chemicals. So we've now taken this ruthless criminal that Jack Nicholson has given us in just a few minutes on screen, we've dropped him in a vat of chemicals, and when he emerges, 
you know, all you see is this hand come up and it's, it's white and it's all painted funny. You get the feeling we have now created a monster and partially responsible or not, Batman's involved in that. One thing I liked about this version of Batman is that they are, Batman and the Joker are intertwined. And I think maybe that's why some of the later movies like Burton's sequel to this and then Batman Forever and Batman and Robin don't really work as well because you're not really intertwined with the villain like like he is with the Joker. Right. We go along from here now, and there's two stories going. There's Bruce Wayne, who is, of course, trying to hide his Batman persona, but at the same time, he and Vicki Vale have struck up this rather interestingly fast relationship, I would say. And they're seeing each other, and, of course, she's trying to find out a little bit more about him. I kind of got that she thought there was more to him than met the eye. Maybe she was suspicious from the outset, but she was hanging around him. You've got Knox chasing down the police leads. The police are looking for Batman. They're trying to figure out what happened to Napier. We see the Joker, as it is, arise from the sludge. He goes to a plastic surgeon. And we don't get to see his face, but you hear him just starting to laugh as he looks at himself in the mirror. And they, they build in this idea of the Joker's smile as being a deformity that he has now had to kind of accept as a part of his life and that helps him build that whole persona as the joker and he comes back to meet with his guys and he looks normal except for that weird grin on his face now that's an interesting piece of makeup because jack nicholson has a face that is very recognizable and for two-thirds of this movie it's obscured by this prosthetic that they had him wearing the real neat choice it's not like they're defacing Marilyn Monroe or something, you know. <laughs> no, we get to that later in the art gallery, but yes. Yeah. <laughs> He's got a recognizable face for sure, but I don't think that's what people think of when they think of Jack Nicholson. I don't think they think of his face automatically. I think if you think of anything, you think of The Shining where he's like, here's Johnny. Well, it's it's a combination of things. It's his delivery. It's the way he looks. Yes. It's the, it, but his face captures a lot of emotion and conveys a lot. And now they've taken that and made it a prop. But if you think about it with that prosthetic, he still conveys emotion. He can still pierce you with those eyes. I think it's a great scene where he's sitting around with the other, I call them the Dick Tracy mobsters, because it's such a cheesy yeah, scene. Again, I have no idea what era this film is in now. But he's in there, and he's telling them, well, we should say he goes back and kills Carl Grissom. All right, shoots him, and he realizes he got set up because his girlfriend was also Carl Grissom's girlfriend. They were kind of, he was, you know, she was playing behind the boss's back, and he found out about it, and instead of doing anything to her, of course, he kills his number one guy, which makes, of course, criminal stupid sense. But whatever. He kills Grissom, and that's when he first learns about who the Batman is because he sees these headlines on the, the paper, and he's like, yeah, wait till they get a load of me, you know? And he fashions himself as the new crime boss, and he exerts his will very quickly on the other criminals. One guy wants out, and he essentially electrocutes him to death. With a hand, a hand shaker thing, like you put in your hand, and it buzzes when you yeah. shake somebody's hand. Again, they they borrowed props from Roger Rabbit, and then and <laughs> built it into this film. But it it works because you get the idea that just because this guy is now crazy and looks weird doesn't mean he's not scary. And we've already seen him in Joker makeup and now in the flesh tone makeup that he puts on to try to look normal or whatever. <laughs> so it's two very weird faces, and it gives him a real menacing quality, as if Jack Nicholson doesn't exude enough of that on his own. 
and it makes for an interesting uh, relationship with Batman and what Batman is going to be. Throughout the, the story, as it continues to go along, we learn that there's an even deeper tie to Jack Napier and Bruce Wayne. Jack Napier is one of the criminals who robbed and killed Bruce Wayne's parents in that alley back in 19-whatever. And he has a phrase that he says, and he ultimately will repeat that in front of Bruce Wayne. That's how Bruce Wayne knows it's him. But we get the audience is in on that from almost the very get-go. You're brought into speed on that quick. That's not really part of the story of Batman as far as true to form of what where Batman comes from in terms of origins. I want to ask you, did we need that to tie these two together anymore? I was satisfied with they had had a showdown in this chemical plant, and in part of that showdown, Batman helped create this grotesque anomaly that is the Joker. I didn't need him to also be the guy that killed Batman's parents. I That's one thing I felt like was a little forced in this. Oh, I liked it. I liked it. I'm, like I said, it it just intertwined them and i think that's something that miss that's missing from the other movies what this movie basically is all in all is a good starting point for the franchise whether they took it in the right direction is another story but i think for what it is this is a good starting for the franchise and i i like that i like that going into the bruce character that it's it, he's got these other psychological issues in the back of his mind that contribute to the whole Batman persona. You know, we, we get into the, the stuff about Batman, the Joker. The Joker's plan is essentially to enact revenge upon the city, and he's going to get them all. The way he does it, 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 I thought this was a really, really neat thing. He changes, alters the chemicals, and, and of course, we go back to Axis Chemicals. This is such a, you know, the Axis, that, <laughs> you wonder if it's named that for a reason. It's such a pivot point in this story. They alter chemicals that are used to make basic household products, all of your toiletry products, and it induces a nervous system reaction in people where basically they laugh themselves to death, and when they die, they die with that Joker smile on their face. And you see these news reports sort of thrown in at different times about people who have died, famous people. There's like a couple models and a couple other people, and it really grips the city in fear because he interrupts this signal and figures out uh, uh, he tells the whole city what he's doing and that there's you know there's no hope for him and he's doing all this he's trying to draw Batman out into a duel one on one I thought it was a neat plot device as you know you're going to give a criminal a motive and, and something to do well I'm going to disfigure people kill them scare them to death I'm basically going to enact domestic terrorism on them and I'm going to call out the one guy I want along the way he had a reason for trying to get, kill Batman he wasn't yeah. necessarily trying he was trying to kill him but he was doing it in such a diabolical way like you say luring him out we need to talk about Bruce uh, Wayne and Vicki Vale's interesting relationship here that's also part of the point that tells us about you know we learn about Batman's backstory and Bruce Wayne's backstory and Vicky starts following him around, trying to find out a little bit about him. She's supposed to meet him for dinner at a, I guess, a restaurant inside of an art museum. But, of course, the Joker intervenes, and he sends her this little mask that she puts on, and he basically gasses the whole place and knocks everybody out except her. And then three minutes later, his people walk in, which I found really funny, but whatever. They come in, and they're playing the Prince music. All right, well, so on that note, I didn't take, get it that way. I got it that the Joker told her it was Bruce, and he was planning on meeting her there the whole time. Oh, okay. For the which is the gas and the gas mask and everything. 
I, that was my interpretation of it is that the judge kind of tricked her saying Bruce wanted to meet her and Bruce wanted to look at her work and it was really knowing that if he said it was himself she'd never come but it was really him and that's hence the gas and the gas mask and everything they deface all of the artwork and I want to tell you I laughed out loud at this watching this the other night with my wife because I said this is how we're going to strike fear in the city. We're going to screw up the artwork. That would strike fear in some people. <laughs> I guess it would. And, and she made a good point to me, though, and I'll give her credit for it here. She said, no, wait a minute. Just think about it. If he can destroy these one-of-a-kind, priceless works of art, imagine what else he can get to. And I said, okay, maybe that's what they're going for. I want to tell you, though, for everything Nicholson's done in this film up to this point, I've been there with him. This is where I felt like he just went straight up goofy and started being a cartoon character and a campy cartoon character. I, again, I think it's the wardrobe they borrowed from Roger Rabbit because he really started doing that <laughs> Roger Rabbit kind of thing in this this scene. That's what um, Warner Brothers got from Disney. They got all the props and stuff for letting Bugs and Daffy be in Roger Rabbit. I guess that's what that's what it is. They got they got all of that. So we can we can get blame that again on Stephen Spielberg. <laughs> but uh, anyway, so they they destroy all the artwork except for the the grotesque looking piece. And I, I do think it's funny. He's got a henchman who just walks around with like that ghetto blaster boombox thing. I thought that was great. That's that guy's whole job to walk around with the boombox and play music. But he puts on some soft Danny Elfman music. <laughs> And begins to try to romance Vicky Vale. And all the while, he's sort of detailing his diabolical plot to her. You know, about how, well, this is what I'm going to do to people. I'm going to disfigure people and kill them. And you're going to be my priceless work of art and all this stuff. And I didn't know if he was coming on to her or if he was just telling her, this is how I'm going to kill you. Because I, I felt I felt weird about that. It was such a creepy... Not even to mention the age difference between these two actors, but even the characters, you're like... That's like your grandpa hitting on you. It just felt icky. I didn't get icky, but he was coming on to her in his own diabolical, psychotic way. And she just, she was just not having any of it. She was just like, okay, no. That's what I got from it, that he was trying to come on to her and telling her, oh, I'm going to create these works of art by disfiguring these beautiful women. I want you to take pictures of it. Yeah, and and he, and he shows the the girlfriend that is, we should say played by Jerry Hall, formerly connected to Mick Jagger, of course, who was famous at the time, famous model, very beautiful woman, and she removes her mask and she's all scarred up and stuff. And I, I guess she was one of his works of art, but yeah, he wanted her to take pictures of these grotesque women. Of course, Batman intervenes. That's when we get get that great cheesy fight scene in the in the alleyway he batman's basically standing there these guys are coming at him with swords and nunchucks and he's just like please and he sticks out a hand and like flips the guy over twice again i i blame a lot of that on the limitations of the bat suit and the fact that he can't really move in this thing so we can't have batman flying around doing a lot of stuff yet for all the cartoony comic book uh, amusement park ride world that tim burton is setting up here there's some realism to it. You know, you see him get shot, and they're, like, hitting on him. And they're like, look, it's body armor. You know, th there's some realism to that suit that makes you realize that it, it it is just real pieces. It's a real person under there. And he's limited by how much he can move. But I also thought it worked for the character that Bruce Wayne wouldn't be the guy that went Bruce Lee on somebody in the, in the alleyway. He'd let them come to him, and then, boom, with one punch, he'd take them out because he was smarter than them. He was outsmarting them the whole time, you know, and he used his gadgets along the way. It worked. I mean, again, I, I was like, all the Joker's henchmen wear purple, and they drive these really conspicuous, you know, late model 70s 
cars with green roofs and they're painted purple on the side. That doesn't stick out to the police at all. I'm, you know, not not in the least bit. So you know, they, they have all the, the Roger Rabbit action going on. But you get her, him, and Vicky, and Vicky's taking all these pictures of him and stuff. And of course, he rescues her, and they, they go off uh, into the Bat Cave. He rescues her. He tells her this is how the Joker has done this chemical prank on everybody essentially and it's why it's killing people here's the formula then they have their moment i guess it's kind of weird he rings up the cape and then the danny elfman music i think he drugs her is the impression i got if they don't say it is he kind of drugs her or something so he can take the film from her exactly but she's still got all the information so she gets the call from alex and she says i've got something for the evening edition and it goes out over the tv news too that here, you know, here's the, the, the solve to the riddle. Don't mix these chemicals together. We're getting fresh products in. Of course, the Joker's watching this. And the next next piece is at her apartment. The Joker comes in, and or uh, Bruce is there, and he's talking to her, and he's going to confess to her, i got to tell her I'm the Batman, you know, because I want her to know. I want her to know. You know, she can be an ally. He cares a lot for this woman. But the Joker intervenes, again, with his henchman, the guy that carries the boombox. So that was great. And there's another great scene with him and Nicholson. And there's one part of this where Keaton, you know, is talking to him and he's trying to be all calm and cool. And I'm like, this sounds like the guy that did the sales pitch in Mr. Mom. And then all of a sudden he breaks this vase and he's all like, you want to get nuts? I'll get nuts. And I told my wife, I said, that is straight up Beetlejuice right there. And I know you haven't seen that one, Anna, but that's really what he was channeling. But it was such a good scene because Nicholson has been so over the top at this point. Bruce, Wayne, and Keaton have been kind of low-key. Keaton brings it up a key, and Nicholson's like, please, son. And he pulls out this gun and shoots him. And I thought that was such a cool, cold, dark scene. Yeah, and that's that's genuine Nicholson, too. You know, being cool and collected and just pulling the gun out. Like, I don't have time to deal with you, pal. That is something you would expect Jack Nicholson to do. But, of course... Bruce Wayne, thinking ahead, has put this stainless sil- or sterling silver tray in his vest. It blocks the bullet, you know, because, again, he's the thinking man superhero. He's always, already thought ahead, this guy will shoot me in the chest and I'll survive. I don't know how he knew that, but whatever he did. Nicholson, you know, threatens her again. He leaves her this box of roses and this dead hand pops up out of it. I think we're supposed to believe that's, that's uh, Alicia's hand, Jerry Hall's hand or whatever, kicking up out of that. And she faints. But Bruce is gone. You know, he, he gets away in all of this melee, and I think that's when she starts to figure out this this guy's the bat. Well, she's already kind of had her suspicions because she's she's a reporter. She's a photojournalist, but she's still a reporter. And something that is kind of believable in the Vicky character, and I think Kim Basinger does a good job with this, is you kind of say, yeah, she does a lot of screaming and a lot of fainting and a lot of damsel in distress stuff that kind of gets it over the top. But she also, like in the car scene, when he's taking her into the Batcave, she's looking at, she's looking at him trying to figure out who he is. And he shines that light in her face so she can't see. Yep. And then also before that, at the scene in the alley, she's got her camera ready to go. And I mean, even risks like getting shot at has her camera ready to go when they try to take his mask off. So she is bent on figuring out who this Batman is, and which is what I would expect someone in her position as a photojournalist to do, to have this real investigative personality. 
Exactly, and I, I want to tell you, I like Robert Wool's character, Alexander. And I did too. Uh, he was—he's that again. It's—it's it's a time period here. He's that '30s and '40s newspaper man, you know, wearing a press pass in his fedora, you know that. He, yeah. But I liked him. I kind of wanted him there for the ride. I felt like they, they probably took him out to build more on that love connection between these two. But I wanted him there, too, because would, he would have been there, I think, if he could have been. I, I, it would have been able to reconstruct a lot of scenes. I realize that. But I kind of wanted him there more. I liked him a lot in this. But, yeah, you're right. She's trying to figure this out along the way. The, the city, that we, we hadn't really mentioned what's going on with the city here and the mayor and stuff. There's this big festival they're trying to throw to bring unity to the city. It's a lot, you know, you see this happening in modern day too, but businesses have closed. People are afraid because there's so much crime in this city. I mean, Gotham is, is crime from every direction you, you could get from just watching this movie. Well, they're ready to cancel the festival because they don't want to do it. The Joker intervenes and says, oh, we're going to have a party and I'm going to drop millions of dollars on, on the crowd. He's luring them out where he's telling the people of Gotham, I'm going to give you money. I'm going to give you free money. I'm dumping money on the whole city. This festival is going to go on with me, and I'm going to dump money on y'all, but where is your friend, the Batman? Just come on out and see, folks, and then I want the Batman to come out. And It's all a ploy, too, because as we learn when we see the big balloons coming over and the big floats and the party coming down, there's gas attached to these balloons. The Joker's going to gas the city. I guess he's just going to kill everybody to try to get to Batman. And police are trying to intervene and control the crowd, but the henchmen are, are, are keeping it going. Batman drives the Axis chemicals, and this is another thing. He blows that plant away. Batman comes in with the bat plane, which I thought was so cool looking. Takes away all the balloons and releases them into the atmosphere. You get that cool shot to it. I mean, it's straight up fan service. We got the full moon and the Batman flies up. The, the plane flies up and just sits in a silhouette for a minute in front of the moon and then drops back into the sky. It, it looked cool in, in 1989. It still looked cool to me today. I liked it. He comes in and of course him and the Joker have this big showdown in the streets. And I want to tell you, for all of Batman's awesome technology, targeting systems is not one of the things he's perfected. Because he unloads about 500 rounds at the Joker and misses him the whole way. The Joker pulls out what looks like a joke pistol and hits him with one shot and downs that plane. I know, I thought of that as I was watching it. I was was thinking, come on now, you've got like missiles and these guns on a plane and you can't shoot the Joker and he has like this prop gun from Roger Rabbit and he takes your plane down with one shot. Really, Batman, really? He's got all this technology, but he still can't beat the simplest thing. And I want to say now the prop gun looks stupid, yes, but I thought it proved a point. That, you know what, you can have all the brains and the technology in the world, but there's a degree of ruthlessness that comes with being evil that Batman doesn't possess, at least at this point, that J- that Jack Napier, the Joker, does. And it's that willingness to really take out your enemy. You know, at well, this maybe point, that's what they were trying to get across. And I'm probably reading way more into it than they put into it, but that's what I took that as, was that Batman is just trying to get him to drop arms and surrender. Because there's no way he could have missed it. You know, I mean, it makes yeah. no sense that he's as deadly accurate as he is with everything else he does. And at that point, he can't hit one guy standing still in the street. But I, also, on that note, in the Batmobile note, kind of bringing it all full circle, I see one p- point, I think, when they're in Axis Chemicals right before he blows it up with the Batmobile. Yeah. They've got, like, it looks like these 
the Joker's henchmen have like these looks like these cap guns like kids used to play with in the fifties. Yeah. And they're shooting at the Batmobile and it's got shields on it. And it's like rip and they're just sitting there shooting at it like it's target practice or something. And it, I'm you know, I'm like, y'all number one, y'all couldn't have had better ammunition or better weapons, seriously. And number two, it's got shields on it. It's a car. Your stupid guns wouldn't wouldn't break a Ford, let alone the Batmobile. Well, again, they borrowed the weapons from Roger Rabbit, so maybe they thought <laughs> that the dip in the... We've taken that probably too far. But, I mean, maybe they thought they were imbibed with the dip or something. I don't know. But, yeah, it, it did look cheesy. I, you know, I'm going to say it right now. That version of the Batmobile looks kind of cool. All right, and as a kid, everybody wanted one of those. You know, everybody wanted to, wanted that car. You know, you thought that was so cool. Looking at it now, it's one of the cheesiest props in this thing, and it's probably just a just a, a function of what they could do with what they had there. I mean, they had money in this movie, but they didn't have enough to make that thing run fast. There's only a few shots where it really looks like it's moving real good. It worked. Uh, it held up pretty cool. I thought the bat plane stuff looked great, even though it's it's old school rear projection, you know, going on in, in the, the the sequences where Keaton's flying the thing. It still looked good. It looked good, and it worked as an effect. They get him on the ground, though. It's all a purpose, though, because I think also you can't have Batman and Joker end it that way. That's just round one. They got to go toe to toe, you know. Mm-hmm. They go they go into this old church. They get up in the belfry. And Vicky's up there, of course. Batman's dispensed of several henchmen. Uh, another, again, he kills another one. He hits him in the head with that bell and then throws mm-hmm. him off the stairs. Him and the Joker get in this fight, and it's when it's it's not it's not the uh, the first reveal of this because it's in the apartment that the Joker does the line that lets Bruce Wayne know, "I know that you're the person who killed my parents." But uh, Joker thinks Batman is dead because he's thrown him off a ledge or whatever. He thinks he's gone, and he's dancing with Vicky, and he's. You know, he's telling her all this stuff they're going to do now that Batman's dead. And Batman pops up, uses the line on him, and they get in a fist fight. And they're going at it back and forth. And I, I want to tell you, up to this point, I had liked the Joker versus Batman fight. But this last fight, where they give Jack Nicholson all these stupid lines to say, and these little gags, like, you wouldn't have got the glasses, would you? You know, all that stuff felt so stupid. I, I just, I really felt unsatisfied with that. I did when I was a kid, and I still do now. I don't know if I'm necessarily unsatisfied with it. Um, is it out of character for the Joker and or Jack Nicholson? Yes. Does it necessarily work? Eh, that's a maybe at yeah. best. At best, depending on how you look at it. But, I mean, can you think of a better way? He is the Joker. He has, He did kill a guy with a gag. Well, true. I, I just thought... It, the thing to do was you let Batman say the Joker's line, and then they just start swinging at each other. You know, it's just all right, fine. Let's let's it's go time at that point. I'm like, this is, and they get in, and it is a pretty good fight. And in the end, I mean, you really feel like Batman and Vicky are about to get thrown off this building by this guy. Mm-hmm. His helicopter with his henchmen shows up, and they lower the ladder to him. And like you said in the, in the plot summary, he gets the bat gadget out, throws it around his ankle, and hooks it to the gargoyle. The gargoyle pulls the Joker down. And ultimately to his death. How did you feel about the Joker dying? Did did we have to have him die at the end of this? Because I, I wanna I felt like Tim Burton was making a statement, had already made this statement that look, in this comic universe that I'm creating, people are gonna die. And we've killed a lot of people 
in a comic book movie so far, and now we're going to kill the the big bad guy. He's going to get it. For, okay, I'm going to look at this from more of a business or studio standpoint. They paid Nicholson a load of money to do this. There is no way they're ever going to get him to do it again, so you might as well kill him off and at least use it for what it's worth. I think it had to happen from a studio's perspective. From the story perspective, did it have to happen? Not necessarily. But it works, though. I want to say that for all of it because it works inside of this universe that we've created. People die when they are in contact with Batman. And when when you fight Batman, you're going to die. I, I think that's that's the message we got here. And I, it was fitting. I, I You wanted him to die. You wanted the Joker to get it. You know, it, it was the only way he could get it, too. I, I want to tell you, though, I, the way they do it, though, it's not like Batman jumps up and pulls him off the ladder himself. He sets him up to where it, it, the circumstances almost kill him. You know, it's like, yeah. the, you know, it, yeah, I didn't kill him. It's the fact that his you know ankle was his leg was tied to a you know 100 pound gargoyle. But whatever it, he causes his death and that endures endears him to the city and to the police. You know, now, now, you know, like you said, we, we've got to set everything up in this movie. We've now set it up to where Batman is now the guy that we know. We don't have to be scared of him. He's going to protect us. So they've set this up that Batman is going to be the protector of the city. And we get the great ending with the bat signal and, and all that stuff. And, you know, we, Vicky gets picked up by Alfred and goes off to the mansion to wait for Bruce, Batman, to come home from work as it is. And that's how, that's how it ends. It ends on that big triumphant score and all that stuff. And i got to tell you, you know... This movie has been a ride up to this point, and it ends on a real, real big dip and spin and turn, and it gives you a lot of gives them a lot of places to jump off from. It, a pretty satisfying ending, ultimately, I think, to to this whole thing. Well, yeah, I think they did something that's very tricky to do. They gave us a satisfying ending that if the movie ended and we never had any other sequel whatsoever, we would be satisfied knowing that Bruce is out there still fighting crime as Batman whenever the bat signal comes up and Vicky's in the car or at home or at her apartment waiting on him. It's it's satisfied, but it still gives us the open ending that he's not done fighting crime, so there are more adventures to come or whatever, and we can see that. Well, yeah, I think we've come to the point where, where we've got we've to gotta do what we do here on Continuous Play. Let's give this thing a play review. What's your play review for Batman 1989? Occasional play, because it takes me back to my childhood. I'm going to give this an occasional play because it's a good movie, it knows what it wants to be, and it does that. However, some of this is pretty thin. And as good as Jack Nicholson is in this, at times he goes a little bit too far. Um, as good as Michael Keaton is in this, they don't give him enough time as Bruce Wayne for me in this. I kind of wanted more Bruce Wayne. The other characters in this are, they're okay. You know, I, I liked Alexander Knox, I liked Robert Wool, Kim Basinger's okay. Everybody else in this, eh, he's kind of, they're, they're generic. They're pretty generic. That is to say, this is not a bad movie, and it's certainly not as off the rails as this series will get. However, it's an occasional revisit, but go into it realizing that this is a different world than the ones that are more modern, the Christopher Nolan versions. You really have to separate yourself from those to enjoy this one, but this one's an occasional play. We thank you for tuning in on this first installment of our Batman series retrospective. Tune in with us again next time when we go with the direct sequel to this film, Batman Returns. For Anna, I'm Jay. Thanks for listening to Continuous Play. 
thank you for listening to Continuous Play's Batman series. Check out our website, www.continuousplaypodcast.com, for other entries in the series and other retrospectives. Continuous Play and Continuous Play Podcasts are not affiliated with any movie, television, book, music, or publishing-related company. All properties are copyright and trademark of their respective owners. Any discussion of the characters, plots, or music from the films is strictly for entertainment purposes only, and no infringement is intended.